before we start, um, Bob is carrying around. I can't. Your audio is off, so I don't know if she she around. I just want her to hear this. Karen, there Hello. you are. Am I interrupting your dinner? No. We just fished. Um, a couple of, let's see, a couple of business matters. Um, one is, I, I've talked with Father, and I've received from most of you some sense of your summer schedules, and there's no way to accommodate all of them. I mean, you're all over the map, so and, and I know you know that. So, what I've decided to do is this. Um, um, what I'd like to do is meet next week to finish Chaucer. It should be it should be a short evening. Um, I'm hoping to cover the women tonight, and I'm I'm a little bit nervous of of not doing justice to them because they're I think there's five tales. Um, and I'm wary about rushing through things, but I, I'm hoping we can do it because I've got broader questions. You, you know, because I've sent you the questions in the email. What I'd like to do is next week meet to finish Chaucer and then take July off. So the whole month of July and maybe into the first or second week. Connie, I got your note before class and I haven't studied it, but I, I know you and your husband travel a bit and I want to look at that more closely because it may it may affect my decision whether we come back the first week of August or the second, but we'll take a month off. And I've talked with Father. We will get back in a classroom, so I will have to get back to you. I'm sorry, Mike's not here, because I um, I know he's he's looking forward to the dinner when we get together. Melody, I hope I'm not. Um, you know, as much as I heap colds on that head of yours, I, I hope you know it's it's an expression of endearment. Um, I want to do all that I can to accommodate your schedule because you're at a distance, so I'll, I'll be writing you sometime in the next few weeks to let you know what we're doing and see if we can't plan it on a, on a day when hopefully you can make it. I, I don't know if that's going to be possible. I, I, I don't want to expect too much here. But that's the tentative plan. Um, I'm going to write a flyer for C's um, as a general announcement, and I know Father will push it. And I'm going to push the class in a little bit, a little bit differently from the way I did before. And we're going to, when we start back, what I'd like to do, just so all you know, I I had intended to start with Shakespeare and do Hamlet and Lear and Pericles and Winter's Tale. Um, two of those are tragedies. And the last two are what I would call, they're called romances in literary circles. I call them sacramental plays. Pericles is the only play in Shakespeare in which a person hears the music of the spheres. It's like a mystical apprehension of God. He hears the music of God's harmony. I don't know of anybody in literature who's done that except Shakespeare. Um, it's implied in Dante, but it's never made uh, explicit. It is in Shakespeare. It's it's an extraordinary moment, just an extraordinary moment. And it's a very odd play, but it's mystical. It speaks to our faith, and Winter's Tale is the most profound work that I've ever read on the on the experience of forgiveness. Just it's a 
Um, it's hard for me to watch the play and not hold back tears at the end, what happens at the end. It's a reconciliation between a wife and a husband and, and after a painful pur pur purgatorial period of suffering in Winterstown. Anyway, we'll do that, but I, I'm going to write up a flyer in which I say to everybody, you know, something along the lines that we've got to get out of the church and go to work on our world. And I'm not sure that we can do that very well without knowing our world better than we do. So the all that we're doing here is trying to find Christ, to find a strength in what we learn from other people, to find examples. Um, in Winter's Tale, the two women, Paulina and Hermione, are probably the two most extraordinary women I've ever encountered in literature. Um, one of the professors at UD said of Paulina that she was a terror and she should have restrained herself. My attitude is Paulina did just what she should have done when she took the king down. I mean, she had no good words for the king. I don't think she lost it. I think she showed an extraordinary courage. So people will differ in their readings of this, but the, the two women we meet in, uh, in Winter's Tale are extraordinary. And in some ways, they go, they go past what we're reading tonight and the women that we're going to deal with tonight. So, But anyway, I'll send that flyer out, and I'll get it to you. And what I'd like to do is um, plan to have a potluck dinner, maybe a movie, probably a movie, to start things off in class, present to each other, and then we'll um, pick up again. When we pick up again, I'm going to take an evening on Boethius. My hope is that we'll pick up some newcomers. I'm not sure that we will. But even if we don't, I think the review for you guys would be good. I'm just going to spend an evening going over the whole work, summarizing it. Because as you know, I, don't, I think Boethius is at the center of our Catholic faith. And he's making arguments that sadly too few Catholics know. But they will be at the heart of everything we do with Hamlet and Lear and the other place. So anyway, we will be off and going then. So sometime, first or second week of August, we will meet and pick up again. So next week we meet to finish Chaucer, and then we take a long break. Um, okay? That's the first. Um, Karen, I've got to say why you're here, and I hope this doesn't embarrass you. Um, <laughs> I wrote you that note. Your prayers just sank my heart. I'm grateful for all the prayers that you guys have given over the last week. It, it just humbles me tremendously. Uh, for your concern, you know, I, I, it, it turned out that I've got a, um, um, a urinary tract infection. And um, when, they, when they diagnosed it, they gave me antibiotics. And so I'm feeling much, much better. But for a while, I was, boy, I just didn't know what hit me because it just took me out. Um, but anyway, I feel much better, and I'm grateful, genuinely grateful for your, for your prayers. But Karen, I don't know what to say to you. There are not many people who have sort of put me to my knees the way you did on our last meeting. My heart just sank. Um, I cannot say thank you deeply enough. You took the class out of my hands, and I was grateful to turn it over to you. I don't know that I can say it any better than that. Your, your prayers were deeply felt, 
um, I was proud of you and really grateful. So, um, for those of you who weren't here, um, <laughs> after after I completed the prayers, you know that I usually do. Karen asked if she could say a prayer. She just caught me by surprise. I think everybody and she said a prayer for me that bowled me over. Anyway, I I can't thank you enough. You were more kind, with a wonderful heart for you to have done what you did. So thank you again, okay? Nothing. Sorry, what? It was not anything big. Well, maybe not for you. God. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like. God. Um, okay. Um, I and think I that... Sorry? Tonight. Shall I offer it again tonight? Once we're I'm on... Glad for you to if wait wait uh, let me let me ask for prayers, and then when people make their requests, I'm glad to turn <laughs> it over to you again. <laughs> I'm I I don't know that you guys will appreciate this as much as I would. I I I there's not time there's not much time for discussions because I'm trying to pass on something to you. I wish we had more time. If we were in a classroom at UD, we'd be meeting three times a week, and I would be asking questions to involve everybody in discussions more than we do. I I so enjoy our discussions. I, I, I'm always glad to hear your responses. I get really upset when people um, think that what they have to say isn't smart enough or wrong or I I mean that that's a big bug for me. For my life I've told kids there are no bad, you know, if you're if if you've got a question ask it. Um, I'm, I'm just I'm embarrassed that kids are embarrassed sometimes to ask questions because questions force us to think about things and so I've always enjoyed um, your responses to things. I, I wish we had more time, we don't. So I'm glad to turn it over to you in a second, okay? Just hold on one second. Any, any prayer requests to start tonight? Dr. Bob? Yes, Kay. Yes, for my daughter, <clears throat> for my daughter in California, Denise, she uh, she has a real aggressive type of uh, uh, leukemia. <clears throat> she's now at the uh, City of Hope uh, Cancer Treatment Hospital, and uh, now uh, she's been having uh, fever and chills and all that, so they uh, oncologist brought in the um, uh, infectious disease specialist doctor trying to figure out where the cause of her infection is why she's having fever but uh, uh, it's it's really you know we are really concerned whether she can pull through it or not and she has a 11 year old daughter who is the youngest daughter she has two others who they are already, you know, grown up and uh, having a job and all that. But now she's asking uh, that we take her. So we will be taking her because they, everybody has a job. And uh, she's, wow. uh, she's in the fifth, fourth grade. And they can't really, you know, nobody is there to take care of her. So you're not talking so, about taking your daughter, you're talking about taking your granddaughter. Granddaughter. Yeah. Grand wow. Granddaughter. 
Wow. That's what she's asking that we do. So wow. we'll be glad to do it, but we just have to figure out, you know, when we can bring her over here and uh, yeah. the, the things like that. But uh, it's really a, you know, difficult thing because of uh, the type of, uh, the aggressive type she's having. And uh, infection, I don't know if she can pull through it. Yeah. yeah. Kay, how old's your daughter? How old is she? Been? 48. 48, yeah. And what's the name of your granddaughter? Uh, the granddaughter is Aiko, A-I-K-O. And she's 11, 13? 11. 11. Fourth grade. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, anybody, any other prayers? Shall we shall we pray for the uh, the people in my in Florida in um, the building collapse? Oh, good. The, the souls yeah. that were lost and the families who are still waiting and the yep. the searchers yeah. oh, yeah. that are risking their lives. Yeah, yeah. Oh, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What was the reading today? Um. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, the gift of your spirit with us through the day. <laughs> One of the great truths at the center of our faith, the words are repeated in Mass weekly, to be always and everywhere grateful. <laughs> Those words come in a ritual at the center of which is the Eucharist. It's you at a cross, offering your life, um, and in a way that makes it clear for us that there's a risen life on the other side of it. So death it cannot be the end of things for us. It's not our faith. Um, death doesn't end things. So um, you offer yourself for us to enter into death, to not be afraid of it, knowing that um, we will rise. That's our faith, and we also know how seriously you take our prayers. So we offer our prayers tonight in that hope. Um, ask our special prayer for um, Kay's daughter, Denise. Um, watch over her, surround her um, with your peace. Um, heal her, please, if it's your will. Let it be our will that she be healed. Um, if it's your will to do otherwise, um, let this be an occasion for her growing closer to you. Help her pierce her heart with your light that she has a greater sense of you and trust so that if things don't go the way she wants, <coughs> um, she has some sense that she's in for a surprise, that she will meet you on the other side and be glad. Um, Turn, um, turn her children over to you. Um, I'm going to speak personally for a second here. Um, if um, if the grandchild Aiko is um, is to go to Kay and David, hard to see anything but a grace there for everybody that a grandchild could know her grandparents. It's something so many families don't know today that they're just separated from their grandparents. So 
if that's what happens, um, let a great grace that <laughs> David and Kay be enlivened by this young child who will move around quicker probably than they want and let the young child um, receive all the wisdom that her grandparents have. Let that grace go forward so that they, a rare gift is being given to them, each to receive something from the other that they wouldn't have except under these circumstances. So let it be a grace, genuine grace. Um, and um, we ask for a special grace for all the people in Florida. God, we think we're so accident prone. We take out insurances everywhere to protect ourselves. We are so surrounded by walls. And then we hear of things like this and know that um, no matter how much protection we give ourselves, we're always susceptible to accidents. That was the great truth at the center of Boethius. The more we depend on these things, the more susceptible we become. Um, be with the people in Florida. Um, we already know that people are stepping forward. It's the goodness of people. Um, for those who are still not sure about loved ones, help them to make their peace. Um, I think most of us are assuming that there are still dead to be uncovered and maybe survivors. Your will in all of this um, help us all, teach us all to be glad no matter what's going on. Um, if this is the doorway into another life we have every reason to be glad even when people face death. <laughs> I say that a little bit nervously because I can't even imagine facing the day myself. So help us all to prepare um, for that um, letting go of this world and, and seeing you, approaching you. Um, Karen, did you want to offer something? I'll turn it over to you. I'm glad to give it back to you. Yes, I, I agree with all these prayers. Amen to them, Lord. And I also want to pray to you for Dr. Bob and for Suzanne and ask your blessings on them. Uh, I pray for your protection on them both in their health and in their safety, particularly in this latest um, illness that Dr. Bob has had. I just pray for complete healing quickly and return to feeling good for him. Lord, I ask you to bless them with strength and endurance for every day. Um, just give them vitality as they do your work every day. Give them clarity of thought and joy in life. Lord, I pray for uh, their family as well, um, their children, their grandchildren. Let them all uh, celebrate each other in joy and love as a family. Bless them with gatherings filled with your love for them. I pray for uh, Dr. Bob that he knows that what he does is such a blessing to all of us. He works tirelessly to bring us um, the ability to see you in the great literary works of our time, which many of us, including me, would have missed otherwise. Lord, just 
help them to know that we recognize what a blessing and a gift he gives us through this class and how much we all appreciate it. Um, I thank you for blessing them. I thank you for this gift of this class. I thank you for being with us all through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Class is over. <laughs> I'm signing off. Karen, if you don't knock this off. <laughs> God. Okay. Um, Karen, thank you again for that. I, thank you again. What a great heart. Um, okay, let's let's start. The poem that I had for tonight, <clears throat> I'm sort of inflicting on you Monday night, Francis Group. I, I think you know from things I've said that we've been doing Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and we just finished the third part, and if, if you've watched the movie, you know that the movie ends when Aragon goes to the land of the dead. <laughs> Is there anybody in this group who's not seen The Lord of the Rings, the, the movie? Oh, Connie! God, rent that film and watch it. It's just, a, it's probably the most important, well, one of the most important liter literary works. It's just a great, great story, Connie. It's just a wonderful human story, even though it's about hobbits. So, anyway, in the third of the trilogy, the, this young man who's been avoiding accepting his position as king because those of you who know the story know that most most of the men who become kings are scoundrels. I mean, they're not they're not good kings. They're not good fathers. That what we're seeing is when men step into positions of power and authority, that they they lose something. We've seen that in Chaucer. It's nothing new. Um, but um, the city that he's defending at the end is um, important to defend because. While they're defending it, there are two hobbits who are approaching a mountain of doom trying to destroy this ring that's at the back of all the evil going on. So it's important that they hold out because if they don't, Frodo and Sam, the, the two young hobbits who are trying to destroy this ring, won't succeed and this evil guy will take over. It'll be a massive takeover. It would have been a little bit like Hitler taking over at the end of the Second World War. Surely. Or the Axis powers. Um, he's encouraged to go to the land of the dead. Now, just to put this into context, remember, in the Iliad, after, it's only after Patroclus dies that Achilles turns. It's because of that moment that he finally admits to himself and everybody that he let everybody down and he accepts his death. It's only because he does that that when he goes back to the war, nobody can defeat him. Once a man accepts his faults, acknowledges them, and accepts death, what's he afraid of? Everybody else's he fights is going to be is going to carry a fear. I mean, that's just the nature of all of us. He has a meeting with Patroclus, and he tries to embrace him, and his hands go through him because Patroclus is his shade, and he says, "There's no body here. There's life without the body is a death." That's our first glimpse of the importance of the incarnation, and it comes before Christ. We, were in, we are incarnate, we have bodies, we're not angels. 
So when we die, we know from Dante, this is the orthodoxy of our church, that our, we will be reunited with our bodies one day. We're not going to turn into shades or angels. That's the Iliad. In the Odyssey, you know that Odysseus has to go to the underworld. He has to go to the land of the dead. He won't get home if he doesn't get there. It's a condition of getting home. He has to meet the dead. And it's there that he receives his calling from Tiresias, the prophet. And same with Aeneas. Aeneas tries forever to found a city. He fails again and again and again and again. And finally he's told to go to the land of the dead and it's there that he meets Anchises, his father, and it's then that he receives his calling. For the first time in his life, he knows who he is. He can stand up. It's like Peter after betraying Christ. In the beginning of Acts, Peter in the beginning of Acts is not the same man that we saw before the crucifixion. He's changed. He knows who he is. There's just no doubts about it. He, maybe most particularly because he knows his failings. He can't hide anymore. No reason to hide. And Dante goes into the afterlife, and you know Dante hears warnings all the time that something's going to happen. There's going to be an exile. He keeps getting these prophecies. And finally, towards the end of the Paradiso, he meets with Cacciaguida, his great-great-grandfather, who tells him what his calling is. So for the first time in that whole journey, this guy who started out being damned knows exactly what he's to do. And Cacciaguida makes it really clear, do not let the fact that you're going to offend people keep you from doing it. People are going to be offended. You still have to do it anyway. So in every one of these cases, we watch somebody who cannot fulfill their destiny, cannot come to the end of their life without going to the land of the dead. And in the trilogy, in, in Tolkien's trilogy, the same thing happens. It's only when Aragorn goes to the land of the dead that he enlists all of the dead. Um, and it's only with their support that he can defeat the army, armies that are threatening uh, Minas Theris. That's the pronunciation. Um, so... And we've taught in Boethius, Boethius is going to die. We've talked about this term, um, anamnesis, and rem remember me. Hamlet's father says, remember me. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. We're supposed to go back to the dead from a, another world, a world other than our own, and bring that forward. How many of us, when we go to Mass and receive communion, understand that we've entered the dead, all of them, and carry them somehow forward? That there's a strength, that we don't need to be afraid of the dead anymore. Christ defeated it. That's why we take him in. He defeated death. He defeated sin. Um, do we have that faith? Genuinely, do we really believe that? Um, so this whole experience that we've encountered again and again and again in the readings that we've done um, and is really important for one of the major works of the 20th century, Tolkien's The Return of the King. I mention it now because we just finished it in, in uh, 
in Francis. But I want for our poem tonight, I wanted to read this section from T.S. Eliot's um, Four Quartets, which I think is the greatest work of poetry in um, the 20th century. Um, we're going to do it. That's right here. By the way, Connie, I did listen to my wife and the doctor. <laughs> probably not, no, no, not probably, no, probably not as much as I should have. Um, but I, I know that none of you can imagine me going through a sick period without seeing Suzanne going, drink your water, drink your water. Have you had enough water? Take your pills. Did you take your pills? <laughs> um, I hope you know that's my way of blessing her. I mean, I, um, anyway, Connie, I did listen to her and I did listen to the doctor. So, and, I, and by the way, I'm listening to you, you big mother. God, God. I, I don't think there's anybody in this, in this program or this group that doesn't know that you are the mother of the group because you're always looking out for somebody. Um, Okay, we, we, we did that. I, it doesn't relate directly to Chaucer, except in an indirect way, and that is, in going back to Chaucer, we're going back to the dead, and I'm trusting that he's alive for everybody, that he's speaking to us now. That's a stretch, but, but let me leave it there. We've been, we've been dealing with the dead a lot, and um, I wanted to read this to the Francis group, and I'm so taken with it that, that I'd like to read it. Um, I'd like to read it with you guys. So this is from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. It's the last quartet in Little Gidding, which is the fourth, the last of the four quartets. He begins with this extraordinary image. It, it is, it's just amazing. He, he begins with this description of midwinter spring, um, a, a period in which something like a winter reappears, midwinter spring. We all know those moments. Spring is here, winter's gone. And yet a day will come where there's frost. And it's like the past reasserting itself, fully present. Not a part of spring. It's a winter thing. It's like it has its own life. He's describing this midwinter, this event, this interseason. And here, Doc. And he likens it to the workings of the Holy Spirit. So it's a literal description of something that takes place in spring, but it's also meant to be an, an image of the way the Holy Spirit works in our life. It, he just is there, fully present, um, in a way that surprises us. We didn't expect it, we didn't predict it, but it's there. Um, by the way, if any of you have any, I mean, I mean, if, we, if I could use a parallel here, you all know the parable of the fig tree, that Christ curses it. I think priests so often get that wrong. Um, remember he passes the fig tree, I think it's, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he passes it and, and it's not producing and he curses it. When they're coming back, um, it's dead. Um, I, think the point of that, I think the point of that parable is it's out of season. You can't expect it to bear fruit. What Christ is saying is we, we cannot judge ourselves by just natural events. As much as we're in nature and we take our bearings from nature, there are these moments when something happens, when grace comes in, and we have to move with it even if it's 
not comfortable for us, even if it's not in accord with our thoughts about our own nature. You know, lots of people think we have stages. You know, according to psychology, you do this, 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 and they did that as a mindset. The idea that there's any mystery to life <laughs> just fades. Anyway, I think that that parable of the fig tree is one of Christ's way of reminding us that nature's important, we take our bearings, but there are times when we can't be limited by the natural growth or the natural stages, that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and it's important for us to listen and move, even if it's not fitting with what we would, you know, we expect or make sense of ourselves. So he's describing, Elliot's describing this mid-winter spring and he's, he's taking a path of going somewhere, okay? I'm just going to read the beginning of it and then pick up at the end of this first section. It's Little Gideon at the end, the last of the four quartets, okay? Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal, though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic, when the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless coal that is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. And glow more intense than blaze of branch and brazier stirs the dumb spirit, no wind but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. That's the opening. I don't want to read the whole thing. I just I want to I want to go to the end of this first section because it it has this these beautiful thoughts about um, the dead. Um, so later in that first section, he picks up in this way because he's talking about making an approach. This approach that we make, you might keep in mind what I you know what I mentioned to you so many times when we take the Eucharist where are we we head out to the car in the parking lot where where are we you know Elliot calls that the apophatic we know that there's something we don't know and we know we know through that not knowing there's something there okay so he's talking about this approach um, and he picks up here if you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere, at any time or at any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to verify, underline this, you are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid and prayer is more than an order of words the conscious occupation of the praying mind or the sound of the voice praying and what the dead had no speech for when living they can tell you being dead the communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living here the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere never and always. I'm going to repeat it again, but keep in mind, there's only one parable that I remember among Christ's parables in which he actually speaks from the side of the dead. 
Remember when he gives the parable of Lazarus, who was ignored by the rich man? Remember, and, and we get this picture in hell of the one man asking if somebody can be sent to warn his brothers, and, and um, he's told they didn't listen to Moses. They're not going to listen to anybody else. So there's tongue with fire. That's the dead speaking to us. Meaning, it's done, it's over. Whatever excuses, whatever things we put in the way, when we're dead, we're dead. There's no more time for excuses. Either we take seriously, you know what's going on, or... So they're not going to send anybody back. He's there. Um, Lazarus has got, you know, he's... He's got water, but the rich man is out in the dark, and so are his. So are those people who live the way he he did. So remember that. That's the. I, there may be others, but I'm I'm not getting them. But that's the one that I remember where Christ is actually speaking from the land of the dead back to us. <clears throat> let me just read it again. I'll let it go. If you came this way, taking any route, starting from anywhere at any time or any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid, and prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. It's that apophatic moment. Where are we? You know, are we here... Remember in Boethius' circle at the center, are we here aware that the moment we're in intersects with timeless? Or are we just completely in this world missing something? So. Okay, any comments or on Eliot's that section before we look at Chaucer? No? <laughs> Melody, look at that. <laughs> You're brimming with questions. I God. Okay, let's let's start. Um, a couple of things just by way of review. I want to re remind everybody of just some basic principles to Chaucer. One is that Chaucer's working in the humanist tradition. Humanist. He's not off in his head. He's not idealizing things. He's showing things the way they are in nature. People die. People go to hell. He's shown us that. He's showing things the way they are, not the way we want them to be. And he has an amazing capacity to love while he does that, but he's showing people as they are. Um, except for the Knight's Tale, we don't see... Um, and in and, and the night, because even in the night still with um, Arceta and Palamon we've, and Emily, we've got characters who have flaws in them. 
There's not a tale we can read that, that doesn't show us human frailty, human weakness, human foolishness. You know, we're, we're, it's a whole spectrum of human foibles. Um, but behind it all is his belief in this pervasive goodness, the Latin phrase. Um, bonum est diffusivum sui. Bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. That's fundamental to Boethius. God is always, he's a good God. Thanks. He's always at work bringing goodness out of evil. That means our whole attitude should be soaked in faith. Whatever's going on, we're asked to approach it in hope and faith. And those are the supernatural gifts. Natural world doesn't know them. Those are not, the source is not us. We can't manufacture them. Those are gifts from God. Those are the things that separate us from the secular world. Faith, hope, and charity. They enliven us. They help us in the moment. Because through them, we know that this goodness is at work. You know, a, a secular person would accuse a Christian of probably being cavalier or an optimist. I don't have any doubt that lots of Christians are optimists. They, they, don't, they don't think about that. They're just, they're just optimistic. That's not what Boethius is saying. He's saying in the midst of a sorrow where you carry a grief, you feel sad, something's wrong in your life. You know, you're bearing a cross. You're bearing a cross. You still have every reason to hope, to love, to have faith. That's what Christ gave us. So Chaucer's working in that tradition. God is at work everywhere, bringing goodness out of evil. The rhyme scheme is one of the clearest indications of that. It never lets up. There's always a harmony, no matter what reason. It can be, a, it can be about a killing. Remember the, the three murderers killing each other. It's still in rhyme. Um, because that goodness is not less present, even if those men reject it. Goodness is still there. So the rhyme scheme is not a technical thing. It's... it's um, it's an expression of a harmony at work, always in the world. Do we hear it? Are we grateful? Are we grateful for it? Doc, can you get me the stack on the right? Um, the last couple of weeks, I um, tried to make a distinction between comedy and tragedy that was really important for everybody. Remember, Dante's work was called The Divine Comedy. Hell's not funny, but it is. Hell's not tragic. In the pagan world, death and this is absolutely crucial to our faith. In the pagan world, death ended everything. It was inevitable. Nobody could escape it. That's so crucial. The, the modern Catholic has no sense of, well, maybe an intuitive, but the pagan knew that death ended everything. That was it. So even those souls who went to the um, Elysium fields, would not know the joy that a Christian would know going to God. Because a Christian carries faith, hope, and charity. Those enliven him. Remember the pagans in Dante's hell, the virtuous pagans? They were under the shadow, this gloom. They were not being punished. They were suffering from punishments. They were virtuous. But they lived in a gloom. They had no savior. Death ended it. Um, so... Tragedy was the high mark of the 
of the literature of the pagan world because it marked an end. It showed if man's going to do something great, he has to do before he dies. So dark death meant the end of things. It would show that a man was noble or he learned to see himself as Oedipus does, but it marked the end. In Christianity, that's not so. Christ defeated death and he defeated sin. Those are the two things we can't get a hold of. None of us will escape death. And I think I'm speaking for everybody. I know I'm speaking for myself. We can't do away with our sins on our own. There's just no way. The, the depth of them is too great. Christ defeated them. Only a God could. So for the Christian, death has been defeated. So, is, so has sin. So there's no tragedy. If, um, if somebody goes to hell after Christ, it's because of a choice. He's being stupid, not noble. I hope that's clear. There was this great nobility to the pagan soul, this Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. There's such a, nobil a natural nobil nobility to the human being. There's this great nobility. For Dante's a new kind of hero. He's not noble. He passes out every you know, ten cantos or, or weeps when he shouldn't. Um, damnation is a choice. So all it does is show how stupid and arrogant humans because an option is given to them. It's a question of whether they can get past their pride to be with Christ and ask for help or stay noble and stupid. Let me stop there for a second. That was such an important... So Dante's work is called The Divine Comedy. Chaucer is nothing but funny. He's just... You can't read him and not laugh. It's just fun reading him. So even if he's describing a summoner who's going to hell, genuinely going to hell, when the woman curses him, he's off to hell. The three murders are going to hell. You're still in rhyme. We're still... Why? Because Chaucer loves life, he loves these people. You know, the people are damning themselves, there's nothing, I mean, that's what they do, it's their choice. Um, but it's not going to make him morbid or make him lose his hope. He is uniformly, what, what we feel in his work is uniformly a faith and a charity. He has a reason to be glad. There's a fun the, the world was a gift. The world is a gift. And people should be glad for it, e even if it involves suffering. So we've talked about the, the importance of Boethius and um, why his work is comic. Let me start, I'm going to go into comedy a little bit more for just a minute, but any questions on that? Because those have been essential points the last couple of weeks. Is that clear to you guys? Are you guys clear on... Why for a Christian, we, and by the way, we're, I'm going to make that point again when we do Shakespeare, because the last play Shakespeare writes are called romances, because they, um, they move along a tragic trajectory, they have a tragic line, they look like they're moving towards a tragedy, and then something suddenly happens to turn them. And they're not funny the way that Shakespeare's earlier comedies are. Um, they leave you with this deep sense of gratitude and holiness and mystery, wonder. That is, they're absorbed into a comic world. 
That's why critics call them romances. It's, it's not a good title, but when you read Shakespeare's later works, you see that he he moved through a, a dark period in which he wrote the tragedies. And even in his tragedies, they they don't end the way they would for a pagan. I can't do this now. When we get to Shakespeare, we'll do it. But So... Shakespeare's vision was deeply, deeply Christian, deeply Catholic. So, any questions or comments about that? Melody, are you, you, I had you on my mind because I really wanted you to see that and then you missed last time. So, do you have any questions about that? No, I mean, the way that you just described um, Chaucer as being, he was showing his work, his work shows faith and charity and there's a reason to be glad, and I think the the women, the stories of the women, all sum up that approach. So Chaucer's approach is that of, you know, that's the way he showed it through all the women's tales. Remember, he showed it through the men's tales, too, even if the men's don't quite attain the virtue that the women have. Well, in a different way, I guess I would say. I mean, there are, the, those tales show those qualities, but... Um, maybe by the lack of one of those qualities in those people is the way he brings them apart yeah. or brings them open. Let's wait on the women because I'm, I'm about to get there. One more. Any, any questions or comments about why you know people can just see that Chaucer's funny and laugh it off but there's something to see there. The comedy has a reason. It's got a source. It's, it's there because it's an expression of his faith. It's important to see that. These are not just funny stories. You know, he's, um, with Dante and Chaucer, we're seeing the very best of the Christian Middle Ages. Um, any, no questions or? Okay. Um, just to sort of broaden our grasp of comedy, I'd, I'd want to run this by you guys because it, it, it should help. Um, it just, it's reinforcing what I've said right now, but from a different perspective. There are various kinds of comedy in the, in the literature tradition. There's what you can call old comedy and new comedy. I, I want to make it a little bit finer than Old comedy is, is usually associated with Greek comedy, Aristophanes, the great Greek poet. Um, in old comedy, typically, the comic action is a result of a struggle between law and something human. The law is central because, now, hold on, because all of you should appreciate it. We've talked about this. The defining virtue of the ancient world was justice, not love. Justice. That's true for the Old Testament. It's true for the Greek-Roman worlds. They had this powerful sense of justice. In old comedy, um, Aristophanes is the master of it, you've got figures who are, who are dealing with some kind of law or situation in terms of law, not love, not love, law. So in The Clouds, which is probably one of the most famous of Aristophanes' comedies, you've got a father trying to get out of debt, and his son is the cause of all of his debts because his son's living at home and eating him out of house and home. <laughs> I think most of us probably know somebody in that situation. Um, if it were my son, I would kick him out. But um, um, his son is increasing his debts, 
And his answer finally is, is to send his son to this think tank and it's associated with Socrates. So Aristophanes is actually poking fun at Socrates because you know that Socrates dealt with these sophists who argued that reason is this power for for proving yourself right when you want something and somebody else wrong when you want. It wasn't an inherent good. You made it, you made it useful to yourself. So he sends his son... Strepsides sends his son to this think tank and, he, and his son comes out and he just makes his li- the father's life miserable and the father finally burns it down um, that's just an example of old, old Greek comedy um, I want to skip the Middle Ages because I want to come back to it once we get into the modern world past Dante into Shakespeare we, we, def- we tend to define comedy as a comedy of manners of social institutions the, the Protestant Reformation has taken place. People define their lives in terms of appearances, respectability. There are things you don't do because it's not proper. So we've got a comedy of manners. We can find it in Shakespeare, it, although it's deeper. I want to qualify that. Jane Austen, Dickens. Um, it probably reaches its height with somebody like um, Oscar Wilde in the play Importance of Being Earnest. It's a very mannered comedy. Everybody's measured by their social decorum, the way they act socially. Because their social manners define them. That's the Protestant world. It's not Catholic. In the modern world, we enter a world in which there is no meaning, and we, we, um, we experience what we could call um, nihilistic comedy. Nihilism, the comedy of nihilism, or the comedy of the absurd. There's no meaning to life. You've got to play like Waiting for Godot, or a novel um, by a foreigner called The Joke, in which everything is a joke on everybody else. Um, some um, um, Heller in Catch-22 in a novel, a movie, that everything's absurd, that everything gets turned in on itself and makes no sense. Now, I hope that's clear. So we went from old comedy, Attic comedy, Greek comedy, to what I'm going to call medieval, and then comedy of manners starting with Shakespeare and Jane Austen and Dickens and going forward to the comedy of the absurd where life is meaningless. I hope it's clear that comedy is a is a permanent genre but its meaning changes according to eras according to the philosophy of what's going on at the time. Is that clear? I'm going to call comedy the comedy of Dante and Chaucer, a comedy of, of love, of charity, of faith. It's not social manners because social manners are not the end of anything for a Catholic. They can't be. Um, Dante gives us the full range of the comic spectrum. Infernal comedy, purgatorial comedy, paradiso comedy. Those are the three forms in which comedy will appear in any age. Infernal, purgatorial, paradiso. Those are the three stages of his journey. Right? In the Inferno, we see a world measured against law. It's like it looks back to the ancient world. Just law. In Purgatory, we see people um, suffering gladly because they want to get better. There's a good end towards which they're moving. And Paradiso Comedy is a comedy in which everybody's been forgiven. So that covers the whole range of comedy. We can say that the Chaucer. Um, stands in the middle of all of that. We can describe some of his tales as purgatorial, some of them as inferno. In the 
um, in the in the partner's tale. I think when he talk, I think it's the partner who describes the three murders, or the friar who describes the summoner going to hell. Those are infernal. There's an infernal quality. They're going to hell. You know, it's it's sort of grim. But Chaucer's comedy doesn't let up. There's a goodness there. There are people who choose to go against it. They're not tragic. They're foolish. They're just foolish. It does not keep him from enjoying the goodness of what's going on in the world. To give it to us so that we can we can learn from it. And I've said this before, it seems to me one of the great things that Chaucer does is he teaches us how to laugh. He teaches us how to laugh, to accept our bodies, to not be so Puritan, because we live in a very, very, very Puritan age. I think we all know that. Let me stop. Let me stop. Any, any questions or comments about these notions of comedy and what Chaucer's doing. Anne, is that a question? You look like you're pondering deeply. Karen, Robert, you guys have something? I must not be doing something right here. Come on, you guys. In what sense are you saying that we are in a very Puritan age? Wow. Okay. That's... Boy, when, when you guys tag me on things like that, because <coughs> I let one of those broad generalizations go, and... Okay, David. Good for you. I'm, I'm not sure that I can answer that. One of the... Two things enter the Western world in the Reformation and in the Copernican Revolution, the Scientific Revolution. Up until that time, you can say that there was a reason for being cheerful in the world. It's a comic world. Yeah? Dante, Boethius, Chaucer. Um, when we enter the modern world, um, and the state becomes almost absolute in its powers, and it's very often identified with a theology, like America's when the when the Puritans came to America and founded it. They were Calvinistic. They wanted to create a what's the word for um, for a theology that becomes a city? What's the word that I'm looking? No. Theistic. Huh? Theistic. It's that. It's it's it's. Um, Oh God! Sorry, you guys. But anyway, the 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 founding of the Jerusalem. the founding of the city is theological. So when the Puritans came here, you know, or we haven't read Hawthorne, we haven't read Melville, but but the so here, so in the East, under the law in Islam, if somebody steals something, it's perfectly legit, legitimate under the law to cut off that man's hand. Because that offense is seen as an offense against God. So in the Islamic world, there is not the separation between Allah and God that there is in the Western world. In the Western world, we believe in natural law, that between the human city and the divine city, 
there's something called natural law and we take our bearings from that. So our response to sins is more moderate. I would say more just, not as extreme. Um, Theophan, no, the, anyway, so the, the laws in the East tend to be much harsher. We, we make, we've made a place for poetry and philosophy in the Western tradition, so we moderate those extremes. Our founding is Puritan. The, the Christians who came here were Puritan. They had turned away from the Catholic Church. They thought it was corrupt. They turned away from England. They, wa they wanted to create a city on a hill. A purified city. A, a purified city. So their attitude towards life was that everybody had to conform to these values or they would be sinning against God. So it was very puritanical. Everybody had to wear a certain dress. Everybody had to act a certain way. If they didn't, it, um, they put themselves at risk of being exiled, thrown out from the community, or punished. The clothes that we wear, the attitudes that we carry, if you look at the political spectrum today, I, I find it hard to hear people without hearing accusations everywhere. People don't discuss things. They don't ask questions. They judge. So the, uh, particularly in America, there's a very puritanical spirit. Look at Chaucer, I mean, as an example. Chaucer tells stories about the three men who kill each other. He tells a story about the summoner who's damned. But he never, never makes a judgment, ever, ever. He presents the stories. He lets the characters judge themselves. His response is a response in faith and charity. If you, if you listen to the dialogue, if that's what you, it's not dialogue. I mean, people don't even discuss. But in 20 years ago, it was, there was an understanding that um, the market square is, is where people of differing beliefs came together to discuss things civilly, civilly, that they would show respect for another person's point of view, even if they disagreed with them. Today, you can't hear people engaging without hearing vilifying, demonizing, accusing. Um, it's awful. It, I, mean, I mean, what you see is it's black-white. Anybody who's not on my side is this. Anybody who's not on this side is this. There's no sense that there's something wrong with both sides. You know, and there's something to learn and you have to work for it. It's, it's black-white. So we... And, and that, I think that's true of Europe in, in lots of ways, too. Europe is very Puritan in that sense. So, and science, um, science is not bad, but in the sense that it leaves us with a diminished picture of our human nature, because Marx, Darwin, Freud, all of them had a very shrunken view of our human nature. It's not helped because there's a big difference between saying we're made in the image of God and we're a descendant from an ape. You know, it's much easier to look down on something if it's not an image of God. So there's so many things going on in the modern world that encourage us to look down, to be overly critical, or not critical in a good way. Self-righteous. Self-righteous, you know. Um, so I, I use the term Puritan in that sense David and I and I I think the Catholic Church should hold itself in the world without giving into that. And I just think that's a hard position to take. Um, I, I I mean, 
droves of people are leaving the Catholic Church. There are lots of people who are Catholics who are don't even know it and they have Protestant. You know, I mean, we've been so influenced by the world around us. So, the Catholic faith has given us something. The, the Catholic faith holds at its center virtues, that virtue is a good thing, to be virtuous. We've been looking at that in almost every work we've been reading. Being virtuous is not easy. Being virtuous and having faith, hope, and charity is not easy. Go to the Protestant world, you will not find people caring about virtue. They're either going to be saved by Christ or not. So the Catholic has something in his faith that should be a protection against being too Puritan. To be careful of being self-righteous or judgmental or those things. So that's what we find in Chaucer. This is the end of the Middle Ages. We are about to enter the modern world. When we get to Shakespeare, I mean, this is, I, I'm so glad to be able to, you guys are rare. I mean, I don't think you, I don't think you can appreciate, but we did Dante Boethius, we're doing Chaucer. We're about to enter the modern world, and we're going to enter a very, very dark world. It's our world. But here with Dante, Boethius, and Chaucer, we're seeing a vision that is essentially comic, full of hope, full of gladness, full of gratitude. It's just a very different way of looking at the world. Let me stop. Any questions or comments? Connie, I missed you guys. I genuinely did. Genuinely missed you guys. I'm sure you're glad for the break from me, but I missed you guys. No comments or questions? Okay, let's let's do the women. Melody, I'm going to mute you for the rest of the program. That's probably a good idea. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, pray for me, please. Please. Okay. Um... We've got these women, the Prioress, Constance, and by the way, did you get my notes? The last, I sent a, actually an edited, so if you didn't get the notes, it would probably help you to have them because they, they just focus on the women. Um, but the women, the women that are the dominant female figures in the Canterbury Tales are the Prioress, Constance in the Man of Law Tales, um, the wife of Bath, um, hard to miss, and um, Griselda, which is one of the stories that I really want to focus on, and finally Dorjan in the Franklin's Tale. Has everybody got that? The Prioress, Constance in the Man of Law, the wife of Bath, um, Griselda, and the Franklin's Tale. Dorjan. That's what, five women, right? Five women. Okay. Um, some of these I'm just going to go over in a cursory manner because we just, there's no way to cover them all. And I'm trusting that you guys have read them and enjoyed them. They're, they're wonderful stories. But um, just a little bit about a couple of them and then I'd like to focus. I'd like to focus on The Wife of Bath 
and Griselda, but I'm and I'd like you to take this seriously. I'm glad to shift the focus to anybody else if you would like at any time, okay? Um, the Prioress is um, belongs to an order, so she's the one woman who fits in with the summoner and the partner and the friar. You know, she belongs to the religious orders. As Chaucer presents her in the prologue, she's very fastidious, very delicate, very fine. She has all the refinements of a woman of taste. She's feminine in the sense that she loves delicacy, she loves these little things. And it's really clear if you read the, the prologue that in some sense um, the way he describes her gives away subtle hypocrisies. That's too strong a word, but hypocrisies. That she's vain, you know, that she has this, she's in an order. So her, her whole life is to be a submission in obedience to Christ. And, but Chaucer presents her with these small vanities, these little vanities. And even her story partakes of that in some. She tells the story of this little boy who loves to sing Christian songs, goes through the neighborhood singing, and he passes through this, um, the Jewish quarter. It's a poverty-stricken quarter. And a, um, somebody who's Jewish slits his throat. And he continues to sing until a priest or a bishop um, puts a, um, the host on his tongue, and he stops. So a miracle takes place. It's his, um, so even after he dies, he continues to sing. So it's, it's appropriate for the... Here's where I want to go. It's appropriate for the prioress because she has that very refined kind of sensibility. She belongs to an order. But she has this external vanity. There's a, you know, she's sort of taken with these delicacies. So it's a lovely story of a, a young child who's vulnerable and innocent, who's foolishly killed, um, in, a, in a treacherous way killed, and, and um, who becomes the occasion for a miracle. Okay. So um, of all the stories, I want to just keep note of the miracles. So in this story, a miracle takes place, once again involving a, a woman. And at least in this case, it's the prioress telling the story. Okay? Um, in the constant story, it's a, a, a lovely story in which, once again, miracles are at the center of everything that happens. Um, um, it's told from the point of view of a merchant. So the, the enveloping action, the, the outer exterior, the way it's presented, is in terms of a merchant sensibility. This merchant um, sees Constance and he takes a description of her back to Syria and tells the Sultan, and the Sultan is so taken that he wants to marry her. Um, and he's allowed to marry her on the condition that the whole court convert, and they do. When the wife, or the mother of the sultan, hears that she is so offended that her son would betray um, the Muhammad law, the Islamic law, that she plans to kill her son and everybody involved in the conversion. So she invites them for a feast um, after the wedding and then kills them all. She kills her son. Um, that's, you know, if, and if this all seems strange, remember that when we read the Aeneid, remember it was Turnus's mother 
who went insane because um, she wanted her son to marry somebody in her race. Now, I mean, I, I, that's so real. Imagine somebody in a in a Turkish community living in America, where first 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 um, degree, what's it called? First generation, generation first generation immigrants. <coughs> if a if somebody if a family from Turkey, a young Turkish guy fell in love with a white Irish girl. I mean, it would be equivalent to the mother just going outraged that her son could marry somebody not of their blood. Or somebody black marrying somebody white. Or somebody white marrying somebody black. Um, it doesn't matter, whatever the racial differences are. She's so outraged. But more, I mean, to the point, she has behind her the Mohammedan law, which would strictly forbid that. So it's not just a familial, tribal, or bloodline problem. It's also deeply religious. Okay. Um, she treacherously kills everybody, and she sends um, Constant off to, in a boat to sea, assuming that she'll die. Um, she's washed up on the Northumberland coast, that's in England, and she's met, saved by a warden and his wife, and her faith converts them and um, a young knight falls in love with her tries to make his place with her but she refuses him and what he does is kill the wife and put the knife in Constance's hand to look as if to make it look as if she's killed him when she's not um, the king returns and hears the story he can't decide who's right because the knight tells in one thing and Constance says another. He asks that the book come and that the knights swear on the book. It happens to be a Bible. He swears and he's stricken. So there's a miracle that saves her because at that point she's going to be executed. Um, Allah, the king, is so taken by her that he himself converts from, from being a pagan and marries her. Um, he has to go off to fight wars and um, his mo uh, mother again, I mean think about the emotional attachments of a mother, how much they play into these. Because while right now my focus, I want to get to the women, the major women, but the, it's interesting that the um, women in the background, the mothers are typically vicious. Um, we just got through with Faulkner's um, Return of the King, or Lord of the, Ring, Lord of the Rings. The fathers are not good. In Chaucer here, even though the central figures in these comedies are women, the mothers and what they do are not. So fathers and mothers typically don't fare well in literature. That's true of Jane Austen, it's true of Shakespeare here, it's true of um, Chaucer. Um, Allah has to go off to war, and while he's away, the mother plots against um, Constance and um, writes letters convincing the king, her husband, that she's involved in s strange things, and he exiles her. So once again, Constance is set off into exile. It just so happens that when she is, or later in the, during the course of this exile, um, the Roman emperor, who is Constance's father, sent men off to um, Syria to kill, to take vengeance on the Mohammedans who, with the mother, killed the Christians. 
On the way back in the ship, um, one of the senators in that party sees Constance's ship and picks her up. So she's returned to Rome and she stays with the senator. The Roman emperor has heard about um, the father, Allah, and honors him. Allah wants to do penance for his crime, um, for killing his mother. And even though it was, in terms of justice, legitimate. So he's in Rome, he's invited to this feast, and while he's there, Constance and Allah are reunited, and she discovers that the, um, the emperor of Rome is her father, so she's reunited with her father. So she, her son, Allah, her husband, and the emperor, her father, all, all reunited, and it's, uh, it ends happily. Um, they will return to home, her husband will die in a year, and her son, she and her son will return to Rome, and eventually he will become a Roman emperor. So the story is full of amazing uh, miracles again and again and again. Um, several of them take place. In the Dorjan story, um, in the Franklin's tale, if I can just briefly summarize it. Um, Dorjan and Avergus um, fall in love. Um, I'm doing this really. Um, yeah and declare their love for each other, but it's at a time when, traditionally, culturally, the man took the position of lordship in the family. He was the head of the family, and um, but they love each other enough that um, Averigus says to Dorjan that he wants to share sovereignty with her on one condition, that if they're ever, and this is really interesting to me, I don't, I don't know if we can spend time on this, we'll have time to do it, but I, I hope we, we do. Um, that when they're in public, that she show him the honor that she should as a wife, that she not do anything to dishonor him. He has to leave. She is grief-stricken. Remember the courtly romance tradition we've been that's been behind the Middle Ages, that the, the knight loves the lady and he does everything for her. Um, here we've got an inversion of that. She is grieving for her husband. I mean, really grief. She's grief-stricken. She gets sick when he's gone. She misses him so much. She's worried about his return because of the rocks on the coast. While her husband's away, um, this clerk comes to woo her. It's the There's the courtly romance tradition again. And she um, rebuffs him, but agrees finally to um, have sex with him, to meet with him, on condition that he get rid of the rocks. So she's what she's doing is trying to to ensure that her husband will be able to return safely to her. So they agree to do that and the, the squire, Aurelius, um, meets somebody who, is, who has magical powers and he con contracts with this guy to remove the rocks because he has magical powers. And the guy agrees to it um, for the sake of a large sum of money. And he does. Meanwhile, um, um, Avergus returns and Dorjan tells him about the bargain that she made and that she actually owes her body to this man. That to keep her word she'd have to have sex. And there's this um, period in the story in which she contemplates suicide. She's like, um, who's the Roman um, in Shakespeare's Shakespeare's great um, God, boy, I'm just getting worse. 
Um, what's his great? Lucre Lucretia. Lucretia was one of the most famous Roman matrons in all of literature. And she was famous because um, her, her husband bragged about her virtue or chastity or virtue in the army camp. And one of the guys was so taken by it that he, he snuck into her room to rape her, to test whether she was as virtuous as she was. And her response to that raping was to take her life rather than suffer dishonor. So there's a history of women whose sense of honor is great enough that rather than be stained by the dishonor, they take their life. It's not uncommon in Roman. That was, you know, that was true for men. It's true for the samurai world. Dorjan contemplates suicide because the thought of being dishonored, to have to, vi to violate her vows to her husband and to violate her own body, that, that they made those vows to each other, they were serious, that she would have to break them. It's more than she can bear. But Averigus says, keep, this is sort of amazing. So Averigus says, keep your vow, make good on your vow. She goes back um, to um, um, Aurelius and tells him, and Aurelius is so taken by the self-sacrificing spirit of Dorigen's act that he releases her of her bond. And when, the, the, when um, Aurelius tells the Magus figure, the magician figure, the same thing, he releases him of his contract. So that in, in each case, when somebody's confronted with a self-sacrificing act by somebody they care about, there's this freedom from bondage, from these contracts. It's like Christ freeing human beings from the bondage of sin. What we, what we, what, our debt. Um, now I want to look at the Griselda wife of Bath stories. Um, but before we do, because I'm not sure we'll get back to this. We, we're not going to have much time. Um, any comments about the women? In fact, let me even, let me, let me, Put the question more broadly, going back to what I've, you know, I've been suggesting all along. When you set these women next to the men, the summoner, the friar, and the partner, who are all scoundrels, these women are extraordinary. Constance, Dorigen, who's the other? Um, sorry, Constance, Dorigen, and... Am I missing somebody? The prioress. But let's just Constance and Dorigen. Um, leave the priors out for a second. Any thoughts? These women are extraordinary creatures, and miracles take place. They're very much a part of both stories. The rocks are removed. The bonds are released. You know, in the Franklin's tale. In the Man of Law's tale, Constance is constantly saved when she's set out to sea. Um, she's spared. When a, when a man tries to rape her, he falls in, drowns. Um, over and over and over again, she's spared by a miracle. When the, the mother kills her son and the whole you know, community of people are present, she's spared. When um, Allah, her king, her husband, sends her to, into exile, she's in exile for years. 
She's spared. She's picked up by the merchant ship. In mir miracles, and, and over and over again, Chaucer makes the point of saying, she's saved by prayer. She constantly is praying again and again and again and again. So in the stories about the Dorigen, same thing. I mean, she prays often. She grieves over what will happen to her husband. She makes a stupid contract, but she's spared of it, presumably because of her courage, her husband's courage in saying, make good on your vow. So any thoughts before we look at um, Griselda and the wife of Bath? Why are the contrast between the, the, at least these two women, we've still got two more to look at, but the wife of Bath is not going to be, I don't think, that attractive, but um, Griselda, Constance, Dorigen, these women are really remarkable women, and they stand in sharp contrast to the men. Why? Melody, besides the fact that they're women, because they put their faith in God, and uh, the men are always trying to take matters into their own hands, you know, to become rich, um, you know, uh, to, to kill death so they don't have to worry about death later. They're always trying to do it themselves, whereas the women under, understand their vulnerability, they're more humble, and they... You know, they they constant constantly prays, and God always hears her. Um, but what what I'd like to say is um, that I thought that story that story really hit me more than any Mitch, of the others. Story? Constance, Constance, the man yeah. of laws, yes, yeah. because um, okay, now I just lost what I was going to say. Gosh darn it, Melody. Was that the one? Because you talked about, um, in weeks prior, with the Friar's Tale, the power of words. Oh, right. And. Oh, right. No, it was Dor. No, it was Dorigen's Tale. I'm sorry. So, Dorigen, you know, um, was faced with this situation where she vowed um, to have sex with this man to save her husband and then she contemplated suicide not just for a second but pages and pages so much so that I just knew she was going to kill herself and I was so mad at her and then then she she just used her words and the power of those words and the power of honesty saved her you know her husband saw her kind heart and said do what you got to do and then, um, and, and it changed the entire story because then, what's his name, um, Aurelius changed and the magician changed because the power of words. Just like, like I was thinking of um, Judas, when he felt so guilty, he just killed himself. But when Peter felt guilty, he prayed. He used his words to talk to God. And so the power of words was really evident to me in this that if they if she would have kept silent the whole story would have been different yeah. so i was really happy for that i really enjoyed that story yeah and origin too i really enjoyed both of those yeah bless your soul good good any comments on what melody said that's a little bit better than because they're women so 
anybody and add? Because they're women. <laughs> I like your earlier answer better. Anybody want? I mean, anybody want to add anything or comment on what Melody said? Anne, go ahead. I think Melody was right on, but I also think of Beatrice, and I think that the women were some, with the whole tradition of courtly love, women were kind of apart. They were better. They were beyond men. Except the wife of Beth. Suzanne's going to accept the Except the wife of Beth. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> I want to be really careful here, really, really careful. I mean, it, and I, wait, wait. I want to go back to what Melody said because I don't want to lose a. Melody is saying two things, and both of which I think are extremely important for understanding. And I think she's right on um, in both of them. Um, one of them is, I mean, I, I, she was. I just think right to the point in her first words when she said. Men tend to take things into their own hands and depend on themselves. There's a spirit of self-sufficiency. Men are supposed to be brave, have courage. They're supposed to step forward. They don't cry. They're, they're not supposed to be vulnerable. So that's something men carry with them, you know, good or, good or bad, through their lives. Um, and until modern times, at least, those expectations didn't hold for a woman. I, I mean, things have changed, obviously, today. But I, I, I so enjoyed the way she put it because she... she she, I mean, she's faithful to the story. She's not imposing anything. She's saying the men tend to do this. They're off in battle. Uh, um, Dorjan's husband has to go out to fight. You know, the, the emperor of Rome is constantly embroiled in things. So if you, if, and here, and I, I meant to say this at the beginning of the class, but I'm glad to say it now. Hold on to Boethius' circle. Remember that circle. The still point is at the center. The closer you get to the circumference, the more you're caught up in the world. What are the four? What are the? I'm going to test you guys. Here's a test. What are the four things that most people that drive most people all of their life that are transitory goods that won't last? What are they? Huge test. Connie, you're on the spot. One of the four. Wealth. Wealth. Somebody give Power. me another. Power. I gave you two. <laughs> <laughs> I know. A plus. Come on, those two, what else? Pleasure. Pleasure. I think it was reputation. I'm gonna I'm gonna flunk my own test here, even though I'm all over you guys. Um, because remember you said you can't take those things with you. You you know you live for those things and they all excite pride and envy, so you're caught up in all these intrigues, killing each other, doing whatever you do. I mean, all that goes on in Chaucer's stories. The, to the extent that you live for those things, they catch you up. You stay on that circle, embroiled in what Boethius called fate. At the center of that circle, you're with God. One of the ways in which we can look at the women is they're much closer to that circle, that center, that still point. I, I love... Uh, Melody's way of putting it. The men try to take these things into their own house. Gets, somebody's got to provide. The, the awful thing is that how many men give in to it? I mean, somehow, the, the problem for men is how do we provide without giving into the world? And until modern times, women have been freed of that. They stand at that center. So, and I, I just thought the way she put it was perfect that 
they're more inclined, I can't remember how she put it, but they're more inclined to accept their limits or pray or turn to God. So they're more open to a greater power than any of the men can bring to bear in their lives. Um, that was one. And we just have to underline it. In the differences between the sexes, as Chaucer's showing here, the second is words. And she's absolutely right on. I mean, it's, it's one of the things we certainly encountered the last time we met. Remember when the, when the woman cursed the summoner and said, go to hell. We talk, I don't think you were with us, Melanie. Were you here? Yeah. I listened to the tape on... Oh, good. On good. I'm glad. Because it was so important. Because the, the point that I wanted to make that night is when, when Christ handed Peter the keys and said, whoever you bind, whoever you loose... It, and I want to put it this way more strongly because Melanie's giving me an opening here. We, we Catholics cannot, un, we under, God, the Protestant world, the secular world, Gnostic, they're in their heads. A Catholic cannot be. We are an incarnational people. We believe in bodies. Christ took on a body. When we receive him, we receive his body and his divinity, Right? Chesterton once said, if you can't find a word for something, it's a good chance it's not good. What he's saying is, there's something always in us as corporeal creatures that want to find words. It's of our nature. Now stop and think about this. The fiat, God said, be, they were. When he spoke, they came. So in the Christian tradition, there's this efficacy with words. Come, be good. You're out. I do. I mean, you, you know, in baseball, you're out. It waits on those words. I mean, can you imagine a baseball game taking place with, an, with everybody waiting for an umpire and an umpire not saying anything? What do they do? It waits on the, the umpire saying, strike, ball, you're out. If those words don't come, the game doesn't go on. When you're in a marriage, they all turn on, I do. I do. The presumption is words have an efficacy. They're efficacious. They, they just don't speak. They do something. When the woman says to the summoner, go to hell, he's gone. It's a way of saying words have a force to say to somebody, stop it and mean it. There's a force behind it. So Melody's right on here, you know, to, because what's so important, I mean, one of the things that's so important about the women is that they constantly use words to pray. And what's at stake, at least for Dorjan, is she made a vow to her husband and he made a vow to her. They have to keep those vows. They spoke. That's who they are. And we live in a world in which, you know, that you know this, words are broken all the time. All the time. Did you hear Doc? Say it again, Doc. They're either outright broken or somebody puts a spin on them that changes the original meaning. Yeah. Okay, any any last thoughts on these two before we look at Wife of Bath? I'm day fifteen, Robert. I know. Can I can I ask oh, one yeah. more question? Yeah, yeah. 
okay, about Dorigen. To me, it seemed like um, when she was trying to hold off Aurelius and she was saying, if you can make those boulders disappear, I'll have sex with you. She didn't, it wasn't that she, I, I got the feeling she didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, it was great if it could to save her husband, but it was a way of kind of being dishonest and trying to get him to leave her alone. So I think part of that, um, and so when you said it was to save her, to save him, to, you know, self-sacrificing, I didn't get that from that, and I probably read it wrong. No, no, but no. But it's just no, the did. fact that honesty is the best policy, because when you're dishonest, when you say words that, that you don't mean, they have that same power, and they can get you into trouble. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with your reading. Um, you can, I mean, one of the ways in which you can look at that, I just, you, I mean, you put your finger on it again, is that there's some growth in um, Dorjan as a woman. Um, she's, um, it, it's, this is sort of amazing. I and mean, we could, we could take a week on, you know, each of these stories. We can't, but if, if you say that women are more inclined to be a little bit more manipulative, men are physically stronger, they're going to push their way. Women have to learn to be, to use their minds to be subtle, to, you know, that you can say exactly what you said and accurately describe her. But, and, and as you pointed out, that, but what she comes to at the end are the consequences of that that she has to face, and then she has to come to terms with what she did say and make good on them. Um, no, I think your reading's right on, Melody, absolutely right on. I think, um, I mean, it's, she does, and it's interesting because um, it's the sexual ties in all these men and women that's at the same. I mean, sex is not a small thing. It's the intimacy between a man and a woman. Um, so one of the things she can most easily trade on is sex because the young man wants that. Um, but she does it too lightly. Um, she's trying to save her husband. I really think she's trying to save him, but she's taking her words too lightly and and she will come to regret them. Um, but a great, I think a great change takes place in her later when she has to confront them. Connie, we had that, you know, I, I mean, you weren't, I don't want to labor this, but we were talking about the second, I think it was the second commandment, don't take God's name in vain. Remember when the devil says, leave him alone. He didn't mean that. You know, the Chaucer is so aware of the difference between surface meanings of words and our intentions, what I mean, what we really mean. And it seems to me one of the things we learn from his stories is that he's a poet, words have to mean, I mean, he's going somewhere with words, that the words that people speak to each other mean something. Um, swearing is not a sin against God, Bloody Mary, I mean, you know, you can go on and on and on. But taking God's name in vain, being self-righteous, and speaking for God as if we can damn or save somebody, that's something to be more careful about. The interesting thing about the woman in the, in the Friar's Tale is that the summoner is damned. I mean, what he's done is already evil. He won't, and he says he won't repent. So what she does to me is absolutely appropriate, you know, when she curses him. Um, I love that story because it's a reminder that whether we want to accept that power or not, that power was given to us as a way of dealing with evil in the world. 
and most people just dismiss language as signs signifying or but to talk about it its efficacious power that's another thing so anyway Connie yeah go ahead did you have a comment or something no mm. no you know I've been from the beginning I we've been <laughs> I sort of laugh because I think you probably think I love poetry and toot my horn but we're incarnational people we're meant to give our thoughts a body our thoughts by themselves are incorporeal they have no body here they don't have a body until they're written or we speak them and I know you all know that we sometimes have ideas in our head and we think we see some things and then we express them and realize <laughs> You know, not as smart as I thought I was, or no, that's not what I that's not what I meant, or you know, that that giving a body helps us to test out what's inside and we can say, you know, that's good or no, no, that's not quite what I meant. We we struggle. I mean that I'm serious, I'm not exact that's a cross. It means we have to struggle to take pains with the words we use. Because we're so good at it, we can word we can use words too cavalierly, too loosely, um, and and I'm so I mean you were right on, Melody, and like Dorjan, you come to a point where you regret, you know, saying whatever it is you said. Um, we're let's see. Let me do this instead of pressing the hour because we're close and and. We're going to meet anyway, so we can take up Wife of Bath and um, and um, the Griselda story. One of the reasons I asked you to to go back to the Shakespeare's All's Well is because in Shakespeare's Helena, Shakespeare presents a woman who is completely obedient to her husband. Lots of women don't like her. I I, I admire her. She's extraordinary. She does things in that story none of the men get caught. None of the men get close to doing again. Um, you remember he puts these conditions. Remember she heals the king and as a reward she can choose her husband and she chooses Bertram and he looks down at her because she's of an inferior caste and and he leaves for France to fight wars because he's going to show what a brave man he is. And he leaves, um, he leaves these conditions that he will not marry her unless she gets child by him and takes off the ring. So she meets all these conditions. Um, and that's the reason I wanted you to look at that. Um, Portia and mentioned um, Beatrice. We, we don't have a backstory. We got Beatrice in paradise. We don't have Beatrice in the world. These other heroines, we, they're in the world struggling with what men do. Um, but in Helena, you've got a woman who's, who does these amazing things and actually accomplishes them. In Griselda, you remember, I'm just going gonna, gonna to quickly summarize the, the, the story and then plan to pick it up again with the wife's tale. But remember that um, it begins with, um, from the point of view of the, the it's um, Walter, um, who is described as being self-satisfied, um, somewhat self-indulgent. All, all things are taken care of for him. He's a noble. And the townspeople are getting a little bit aggravated because he's not, he's not got an heir. 
And he thinks about marrying, and he comes um, across this beautiful woman, Griselda, who's a peasant below him, um, and asks her to marry, and she willingly does marry him. And um, immediately he begins to test her. She has a son, um, and he takes the son away to test his wife to see if she will really be obedient. Um, and time goes on and they have another child and she um, has a daughter and he takes her away and um, and she doesn't cry she willingly is obedient to what he asks and um, sometime after that he um, finally says that he's got a papal dispensation to separate and he's decided to marry somebody else because there's something wrong with the marriage she goes along with that She's asked, Walter asks her to be present at the wedding ceremony and he's going to present this woman that's going to be his bride and it turns out that that's her daughter. So the husband presents the son and daughter. He's been keeping them all this time, years have passed. And when Griselda realizes what's happened, she collapses in, I, I think, what's emotional exhaustion and gratitude. I mean, it's, it's such an extinct. Um, so in in Griselda, we've got an example of the Job story. Now I want to put this as hard as I can. I want to put this as hard as I can. In the Job story, nobody nobody blinks an eye at what God asks. Or um, wait, let me put that different. Job story begins with Satan and God in an exchange, and Satan criticizes God and says, "You think all these people are righteous when they're not." So it's framed. The frame of the Job story is God with a devil. And God gives the devil permission to test Job by taking all these things away. And you know that Job eventually loses everything he has. And the response of his three friends is that the reason he's lost them is he's being punished for some wrong he's committed against God. At the end, um, Job is grieving and angry at God and God appears to him. It's a theophany. What do you call those this political regimes that are, it's got Theo at the beginning, I'm still... Um, theocracy? Theocracy, theocracy, thank you. I can rest now, theocracy. Um, it's, a, it's, a theos it's a theosophy, it's an appearance. God appears and Job and God, Yahweh, speak. And God gets pretty stern with Job and finally says, Who, who are you? Were you here at the beginning of the world when I laid the foundation, you know, and, and I did this and I did all these things, and Job finally <laughs> learns to shut up and listen to God. And, and Yahweh then turns his anger at his friends and said, you've got it all wrong. So the friends answer that these are all reflections of your sins were self-righteous accusations. You missed, because everything in the Bible takes that away. But even though there are things that sort of push us there, but in that case, it's taken, it's taken away. Job, Job um, recovers his life and goes on happily um, and in union with God. In the Griselda story, it's like a variation on the Job story, except now it involves a husband and a wife. And it's in the context of a, in Christ, Christian terms, this is from Paul, it's from God, that um, um, wives obey their husbands and husbands obey God. 
um, there's that hierarchy. That's the glory to God moving up that chain. But here we've got Walter taking things away and testing her, and, and, and as I just described it. So um, let me stop there because we're about out of time. I, I, I hope everybody's aware of the comparison with Helena. That I've, that I've taken Chaucer's treatment of a medieval wife and set it against Shakespeare, who's on the verge of modernity. Um, I think when we meet again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, uh, read to you that, that sonnet. I think it's, it's sonnet 14 or sonnet 10, I can't remember. My Mistress's Eyes. He's responding to that tendency of men to idealize women and put them on a pedestal. You know, because I, I wanted to get to that from what... You said earlier, Anne, there's a danger in men putting women on a pedestal because they can, they can idolatrize them. They can make them something they're not. Um, it, it, men and women are called to love each, the Christ in each other and to help each other fulfill, realize that Christ. When a man puts a woman on a pedestal, he's setting himself up for real problems. Shakespeare takes that all away. He says, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the, you know, she's got black hair and done on her breasts and bad breath. And, um, and, but the, the conclusion, the concluding couplet is just tender. He says, he has um, no reason to believe that he doesn't love his wife more than all these men who, you know, spend all their breath praising these women and on a, idealizing them. So you've got Helena in Oswell and you've got Griselda here. What I'd like to do just in the few minutes we have here is just ask for any responses you have. What was your response to the story? I've got a, an anecdote to pass on before we leave tonight, but I want, I'd like to hear from you guys before, before I do. Any response to the Griselda story? Anne, go ahead. I'm no Griselda. <laughs> uh, I, her husband hurt her. He kept the children away from their mother. mother. I had a hard time with this one. Yep. Hard one to have a time with. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what was intended. Yeah, did you hear Suzanne? Yes. Let me let me put this sort of blankly. I mean, it goes along the lines of what you're saying, Anne. Because there's a danger in a woman being just used and stepped on, you know, and, I, and I, it's so clear from Chaucer that he does not believe that. I mean, over and over and over again, he, in so many of the tales, he makes clear that he doesn't. But the sovereignty that um, Dorigen shares with Averagus, you know, things like that. Um, one of the parishioners, when we did this at St. Francis a couple of years ago, when we reached to this point, when we were dealing with a woman, she was so enraged so upset at what was going on. She said, if I'd been that man's wife, and she was serious, I mean, she packs a pistol, said, I would have taken out my forty-five and shot him. <laughs> 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 now, what's wrong with that? Let me, let me get the other side, because I, I mean, I don't think any of us will have trouble with what you're saying, and mm -hmm. But what's wrong with that? In I mean, what's Chaucer doing? What would happen if, let's say, somebody pulled out a gun and said, you, that's my daughter, that's my son, you cannot do that, bang. Because some women do that, and some women do that. What's wrong with that here in Chaucer's story? 
not I don't want to go into ideologies or feminism uh-huh. or anything. I want to stay in the story deal with the story in its own terms what's wrong with that I would guess that um, as a husband and wife you're supposed to act out of love even when love is not returned you're still acting out of love with the hope that that person will change so yeah and melody follow follow through with you let let's say let's say the woman I'm talking about replaces um, Griselda and when she reaches this point in her life and said enough and pulls out a gun and shoots Walter what's wrong with that I, I want to go there okay I mean I, I don't know what would Jesus do I mean that's that is the antithesis of the way that we're supposed to treat each other regardless of how we're treated you know turn the other cheek so I'm assuming that that's the answer you're looking for sorry I, I, no, yeah, so, yeah. I haven't I haven't read this this is the one tale I have not read and I didn't even know that it was assigned until this evening and now I know why it was divine intervention that <laughs> God wanted me to listen to you first before I read this. I don't, I don't put that on me. <laughs> Bob, Bob, Karen, did you guys have a response to my question? It looked like you were talking between yourselves. Did you? Uh, have? We were talking about that marriage is a sacrament and you have to live to your vows and the purpose of it is to help your spouse get to heaven. Let me put this differently because I, I mean this is funny because I try not to get ask questions to get to answers I've got. I mean, sometimes I do that because sometimes I'm, I'm really, I, I just love questions and, you know, want to hear and open. But in this case, I've got an answer. But yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. But would justice have been served if she pulled out a gun and shot her husband? Because what she's saying is this is unjust. Would she have served justice? Well, he didn't kill the kids. He just no. told her. He just told her they were. So dead. what is everybody clear? She yeah. would <laughs> she would have committed an injustice and be right. charged with murder. Yes. What's wrong? What's Chaucer? I mean, go back to Boethius. This this is so Boethian. What's Chaucer showing us? Nobody likes what Walter's doing. Unless you're an egotistic egomaniac husband or Nobody liked, but Chaucer's doing this. I mean, he's. I, I love this story because of the irony of it. She pulls. Why, why would a woman pull out a gun unless she thought he's being unjust? He cannot do this. I'm just. Bang. He's dead. What's wrong? She's making a judgment, and that's not her place. Well, she's. No, it is her place to make a judgment, but is she right? No, she's not. I mean, all of us make judgments all the time. The judgments are good when they're in accord with God or justice or goodness. We make judgments all the time. She's going on, I think this is the truth by it, she's going on the basis of what seems to be. This is so Boethian. We don't, she's not seeing things as they are. The, the poet is, and we should. I think what Chaucer showed is that so often we get tempted to make judgments about people when we think we see things and we're caught in seeming. We're not really seeing what is. 
And this tale more, more dramatically shows that, I think, in almost any other tale in the Canterbury Tales. And I thought it was beautifully put when, you know, the parishioner said, I'd put out my forty-five and shoot him. <laughs> she would be a murderer. She would be the murderer. Because she, she was acting on the basis of what, how things appear to be. So many of these tales are cautionary. He, Chaucer's showing us um, there's more going on there. We see, think, remember that Boethian circle? And I, I mean, all that you've said, faith, hope, charity, you made vows, turn the other cheek, what would Christ do? Do we really see we're supposed to help you? I mean, all those things go right to the point. Um, how much of what we do is based on our interpretation of the way things appear to be. I mean, don't most of you, I mean, I, haven't most of you or all of you had experiences over and over and over again where you've made a judgment against your wife, against your husband, against your children, and looked back and regretted it? And wished that you had seen better or deep, more deeply? And um, realized that as you've aged, you see more deeply and you're not as quick to do what you did then? Um, the, the trouble was, I mean, we, this has been a constant thing. The, the problem is how we see things, whether we see things well or not. I don't think anybody likes Walter. I don't, I don't think anybody <laughs> much appreciates what Grisilla, but she doesn't. The great irony is that it, it's all seeming, finally. Um, to, to take out a gun and shoot her is not the answer to that. It, it, it just it flies right by Chaucer's irony. So, um, last comments. Any any last thoughts about the women? Sure. I'm trying to say, Sorry, I'm being, I'm being funny, but just believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. <laughs> I believe half of what I see and half of what I hear. Okay. <laughs> Because I believe in my eyes and ears, that's that's why. But I but I know that, you know, you can't live in literature this long and not be aware that that the surface gives us something. We we cannot not see it. We cannot not hear it. The surface gives us something, but there's always something more going on that we don't see. The great truth of Boethius was God is always doing something to bring some good. <laughs> How many of us can see that? Um, do we live that way? I mean, I, I thought Melody just put her finger on it when she said, you know, the men take things in their hand, the women are more inclined to pray, They're, they seem to be more open to wait on things. Um, you know, I think about women pregnant. They have to wait. They can't just say, I'm tired of this, come out. You know. <laughs> Truly, I mean, you know, and, 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 and growing up, if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm a man, I, I'm, I'm stupid and dumb, you know. Women grow up with wombs, they have periods, they have to wait. I mean, things go on with a woman that I just, it boggles my mind to think about. And all of this gets passed over in the modern world. We're just the same. We're not, men and women couldn't be more different. We are just very different creatures. Other. Other. Um, anyway. Um, thank, thank God we, I thank God we have each other I hope truly I hope um, 
Okay, any last thoughts before we go? Karen, bless your soul. I, I can't say thanks enough for your prayers. I'm, um, I don't think you were here, Melody, but several weeks ago I, I asked everybody for prayers. It's, you know, we, we ask f prayers for other people. Um, you've asked for prayers for yourself. I'm, I was asking prayers for me and Suzanne, and particularly for me. Just, I think all of us carry spiritual struggles. You know, and, and we don't often show them to the world. So I was, Karen, I was just so humbled by um, what you did. And so I'm really grateful. Um, we will meet again last next week for last work on Chaucer. We'll do, we'll pick up with the women and look at the wife of Bath and see if we can't put um, Chaucer together. And, and then we'll take a break. Okay. You all be safe. It's good to see you. And. Keep us in your prayers. We will keep you. <clears throat> okay? Bye, you guys. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Good night. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Bob. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. You're welcome.